Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thank you, everybody. Welcome, one and all, to The Late Show. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. We are right. We are right in the middle. We are smack dab in the heart of primary season, and Donald Trump is out there trying to win over the voters that matter most, his juries. (laughs) Today, today, he was back in the Manhattan courtroom for the second defamation trial against him brought by E. Jean Carroll. You may remember last May, a jury found that Trump sexually assaulted Carroll and then defamed her by lying about it a crime known in Republican circles as presumptive nominee. (laughs) Now, I'll tell you all about it in the latest installment of our ongoing series... Road to the White House and or Big House. Donald Trump, be the people. America decides and or convicts. We are an institute... In a powerful death penalty. Now, Trump uh, actually testified today briefly. Of course, the last time Trump was allowed to speak in court, it went completely off the rails, which did not escape the man overseeing this case, federal district court judge and Batman's backup butler, (laughs) Lewis Kaplan. Kaplan set very strict guidelines for Trump attorney Alina Haba, seen here saying, I don't know what happened to your couch's upholstery. Why do you ask? Haba, Haba limited herself to a series of yes or no questions, which Trump failed to answer with just yes or no. Instead, he did this. Haba, did you instruct anyone to hurt Ms. Carroll? Trump, no, I just wanted to defend myself, my family, and frankly, the presidency. (laughs) Judge Kaplan broke in and instructed the jury to disregard everything after no. (laughs) Which is fitting. Because the whole trial is the result of Trump disregarding everything after no. (laughs) Now, Trump... Haba. Trump was supposed to testify on Monday, right? This past Monday? But the trial was delayed after a juror got sick, and Alina Haba also said she was feeling ill and had a fever after being exposed to COVID-19. Of course, her client right there could have cured her instantly with a little horse paste and a shot of bleach. (laughs) But it turns out she did recover kind of quickly because the very next day, Haba was photographed in New Hampshire at a Trump victory party. Busted! Reminds me of when I said my appendix burst, then someone snapped a pic of me front row at Guns N' Roses! (laughs) (laughs) Some Axl Rose fans here. The damning photo of Haba was posted by a die-hard Trump supporter named Dylan Quattrucci. Fun fact, Quattrucci is Italian for four douchebags. (laughs) Now, 
Seems like Trump's team uh, realized immediately this picture was not a great look for the defense because shortly after Dylan posted it, he was kicked out of that party and he recorded the kick out live. I'm getting removed from the Trump event. Why do I have to leave, sir? Why are you removing me? Can you give me a reason why? Did Trevor tell you to remove me? I saw Trevor and the guy just pointed like him to me and said, I have to leave. I'm like the biggest Trump guy here. I was the deputy director of the campaign. This is how they treat loyalty in Trump world. Correct. <laughs> yes. Correct. Check. That is exactly how they treat loyalty in Trump world. When will these people learn? Ow! Wow! After everything I've done for it, how is this hot stove treating my hand this way? I'll never do that with my other one. Quattrucci ah! <laughs> then took to Twitter to protest, saying, end the war on alpha males. <laughs> yeah, brother, you tell them. Because <laughs> we all know the motto of alpha males. Can someone please find Trevor? <laughs> what? I'm going, I'm going. If it was a bad day in court for Trump, it was even worse for his former economic advisor, Peter Navarro, seen here saying, I'm open, throw me the baby. <laughs> a quick reminder for those who have forgotten, and I don't blame you if you have, Navarro was one of the architects of the false elector scheme to steal the election from Joe Biden. Well, a few months ago, Navarro was found guilty of criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to testify about his role in January 6th. Well, today... He was sentenced to four months in prison. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Consequences. consequences. Truth and consequences. Here's a little tip for Navarro on your first day in. Go up to the biggest guy in the prison yard and say, hello, Mr. President. <laughs> lately, lately, Trump has been treating the folks at his rallies to an unlikely warm-up act. He's been playing British indie rock band The Smiths. Yeah! Nothing gets the crowd riled up quite like a plaintive acoustic ballad. <laughs> I want to see him pump up a football team. Okay, let's get down and get out there and put it all on the field and win. But first, our fight song. One, two, three. Everybody hurts tonight. <laughs> you can't do the... You can't do the cats? Oh, the cats. <laughs> <laughs> the name of the song they're playing there is Please, Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want, which for most Trump supporters is custody of their kids. <laughs> now, sure. Nope. All right. After seeing, after seeing footage of the rally yesterday, the Smiths guitarist Johnny Marr denounced Trump's use of their song, adding, Consider this shut right down right now. <laughs> Our current president is also running, and no one is suing him for his campaign's pre-show music, Pop Goes the Weasel. <laughs> Yesterday, did you hear about that mulberry bush? Wow. Yesterday, he got some good news because the United Auto Workers endorsed Joe Biden. That's right. 
United Auto Workers. United Auto Workers, that's great, guys, but if you really want to help, please build him an Optimus Prime body. <laughs> beep, beep, I'm a truck, Jack. So, now, with the UAW's endorsement alongside those of the National Air Traffic Controllers Association and the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen, Biden has the support of planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> All modes of transportation. Time to pick a side, rollerblades. Canal boatman. <laughs> UAW President Sean Fain did not mince words when talking about the Republican frontrunner. Donald Trump is a scab. <laughs> okay. I, I, I get where you're coming from, but the polite term is cold sore American. <laughs> oh, there's good news. There's, there's more good news for Biden. The economy is cooking right along. The Dow is north of 38,000 today. Wages are up, unemployment below 4% for 23 months in a row. And today, the Commerce Department announced the economy grew at 3.3% rate in the last quarter. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's a little technical. But according to macroeconomic theory, number go up equal good. (laughs) Now, is that right? Can you check my math? Can you, check me, can you check me on that? I got you. Exactly. You, check, you, you, got, you got that? Okay. For all last year, a bunch of people were predicting a recession. But instead, every economic indicator of Bidenomics is positive. Or, as the news people call it... It's an economy that is cooling on the inflation front, but still showing growth on the, the spending front. The Goldilocks. Perfect Goldilocks scenario. We're getting some of that Goldilocks. It is Goldilocks. This is Goldilocks. That's right, Jack. Things are going Goldilocks. Now, look up. Look here. I'm serious, folks. I knew Goldilocks. Nice gal. Real particular. Real particular about her porridge. Not me, though. Hot, cold. Don't bother me. I'll toss that bowl down. Too sweet. Soft foods. Doctor's orders. (laughs) The old mouth chicklets aren't aren't what they used to be. But... Lost lost the words there a little bit. Can't, Can't win them every time. But even though it looks like there's no recession and the economy looks good on paper, people feel like it's not bouncing back. And this bad feeling, the media has dubbed the vibe session. (laughs) And I get it, but thankfully, I have a foolproof way to bring the nation out of a vibe session. This is... Stephen Colbert's Vibe Session. What's cooking, my fiscal cats? <laughs> you out there counting your ducats? Let me brighten your economic outlook with my bongo sonic output. Hit it. <laughs> Dig. You're drowning in dough, but you don't feel it because it's not yet bread. <laughs> I'm talking that sweet pumpernickel, baby. Because I heard from a little bird that in 2023, the U.S. economy accelerated at a 2.5% annualized pace. And coal prices for personalized consumption expenditures rose just 2% in the fourth quarter. No wonder Janet's yelling. So no need to go slow, Joe. The vibe session will be jazz-suscitated. And if the economy starts this cooking in November... We'll make Trump a way gone daddy. Coming up, 
Martin Scorsese. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Show everybody, folks. Thank you very much, folks. My guest tonight is one of the most influential filmmakers of all time, who has directed films including Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, and The Irishman. This week, he received an Academy Award nomination for Best Director for his new film, Killers of the Flower Moon. You know, you got you got nice color scheme. What what color would you say that is? My color. I think it's, I think it's real pretty. You got nice color skin. You got, you got a nice house. I think you just pretend to be so severe. I bet you, I bet you got a soft belly on the inside there. Shush on me, Oh, you just called me a coyote, didn't you? Echo. Coyote. Coyote wants money. <laughs> well, that money's real nice. It's mm. real nice. Especially if you're lazy like me. I mean, I want to sleep all day. I don't want to make a party when it's dark. <laughs> Please welcome to The Late Show, Martin Scorsese. Sit, sit. Oh, my. Nice to see you again. Nice seeing you again, yeah. Now, uh, uh, before I ask you any questions here, what's going on with your hand? I see you, you got a little... Oh, uh, I'm... What's going on? <laughs> well, I missed a few payments. <laughs> uh, well, you think it's wise guys. No one else. It's IRS. <laughs> they just took a fingernail, you know. Oh, no, sure. It's all exactly. okay now. It's exactly. all okay now, yeah. They're firm but fair. Yeah, no, no, Absolutely. Now, this is, this is your uh, first time on the, the Late Show. First time we've talked here. I interviewed you for yes. an hour and a half at the Montcarf yeah. Film Festival. Yes, we had a great yes. time. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for being here tonight. But I understand this is not your first experience with the Ed Sullivan building. I found this out today, and I'm thrilled about this, is that you shot uh, a little bit of Taxi Driver. That's here. right, yeah. So wh- where yeah. did you shoot? In the hall, in, one of the, in the hallway with the telephone booth. So the, um, oh, the entrance to the, the office entrance building. The entrance to the office building. So here it is. There's Travis Bickle. This is a, a, a this well-known moment of the movie. There, there he is right there. And this right here, and this is the next shot. This is him walking away. This, these are the elevators we go to work in the yeah. morning. Well, what, right there. what that I will is... never think the same way about that hallway. Oh, well, <laughs> what, what that was was that um, I was thinking about how, what the style of the film should be, and it was starting to seep in. And the first shot I thought of was when he places that phone call to Betsy and she won't return his calls, and she she doesn't accept the flowers, um, and he's trying to speak to her. I felt I needed a hallway where I'd had the, I needed a, a location where I had the phone booth on one side, and I could just, because it was so painful, I decided that the camera should just track away and go to an empty hallway. 
because of the emotional impact of it, then he would hang up and he'd enter the frame and leave. Mm -hmm. And this was the place we used. It was the very first shot I thought of, and that was the entire style of the film came from that shot. Wow. You know, yeah. Interesting. Well, that kind of thoughtfulness and that kind of care of making a movie has, has paid off over the years for audiences and for you because the Academy Award nominations came out this week. Congratulations on 10 nominations for Killers of the Flower Moon. <laughs> and including, including, as I said in the introduction, best director for you. This makes you, this is your 10th nomination as director, making you the most nominated living movie director. Spielberg only has nine. Catch up, Steve. And... <laughs> How does it feel to see a, a, a film get this kind, this kind of recognition? Well, this for this particular film, too, it, it's so exciting. But more than that, because the picture means so much to me, um, and it took a number of years for gestation. I mean, you look back 10 nominations over the, over the years, I, I honestly don't know how that happened. Mm. I, I don't know, because you never make... You don't make films for awards. You make the films the best way you can make them. Right. You know, and there were no I don't big... do the show for Emmys, thank God. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm much higher. I'm up here. No, you're, no, you're above cause. it. Noble cause. Noble cause. You are above it. You're above oh, it. Thank you very much. You know, but it, it really is something because the picture, um, I'm very pleased that so many people uh, have been nominated for the film, including Robbie Robertson. Uh, two, Your dear two, old friend. My old friend. Yeah, year. yeah. His, his wonderful score and the song that they have in the film. So this is something very special. Lily Gladstone, of course. Um, amazing. You know. And Bob De Niro, too, is it? And yeah, Robert yeah, De Niro. Yeah, yeah. Quite amazing. I'm sad, I'm sad about Leo, of course. I, sure. I would have liked to, to see him in there as best actor, but um, his presence is there. It's, it's uh, pivotal to the picture and the work. Well, I was very moved the first time that I saw it, not only uh, for the, the way you told the story, but... Visually, you're 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 exploring things that I've never seen you do before. Maybe maybe it's not surprising to you, but I the the moment that I don't want to give away what it is, but there's a moment when there's a fire outside and yeah. he's in sort of a fever dream, and there's almost like a stained glass or cave painting aspect yeah. to it. Yeah. And um, I so admire how you're always finding new visual vo- vocabulary for the the stories you want to tell. How where does that come from? Well, the story itself and the fact that this character, Bill Hale, was burning his fields there for uh, the prairie that he had around him um, uh, for the insurance money. After all the machinations, after all the crazy evil things he's doing, he burns his land to get insurance on it. And I imagine that that was like um, the Valpurgisnik, the kind of medieval fresco mm-hmm. of um, a hellish experience with little figures dancing around the flames. And I had that thought way, way in the beginning of the working on the script. I said, the whole picture has to come together in those images at that point. And, and in that m- moment, you can't tell whether, at moments, whether they're dancing or fighting Well, we had a choreographer. Working. We had a choreographer. That's right. We had them working and then make a move to make it seem, are they dancing? You know, are they, are they worshiping the fire? Uh, basically, the evil, in a sense. We have to take a quick break, but please do not go anywhere because we're right back with more Martin Scorsese, everybody. Stick around. (laughs) 
John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, we're back with the one, the only, the maestro, Martin Scorsese. Well, th- this story is based upon Killers of the Flower Moon, which is the David Grant David novel Grant, no, yeah. of the same name. But that is about the origins of the FBI that has this story as, right. as the source of it. But this is flipped. It was, this is more the story of Molly and Ernest Burkhardt. How did that flip come about? Well, for a couple of, I'd say a year and a half, we were working on the script, Eric Roth and I, and um, we'd work it out with uh, Leo. We'd have meetings, and uh, we were going to do Killers first, but Irishmen needed to be made because if we waited any longer for Irishmen, the CGI wouldn't help. (laughs) You know what I mean? Bob, Bob looked at me, and I, I don't know, Marty, I said, okay, no, we better go with Irishman. So, <laughs> you know, he pushed it so far, you know? So we did that, and while we were doing Irishman, working on the script, working on the script, coming through, coming through it from the point of view of the, uh, the Bureau of Investigation of the FBI, and coming in, and after a while, I began to get very, I don't know, I said, I've seen this before. I mean, it's very good, but it's like a police procedural. I like seeing those films. I don't know if I can make one. And at the same time, I'd gone to um, Oklahoma, uh, to the Osage uh, country, county, and uh, at, at uh, Greyhorse, they gave a special Osage dinner for me and a couple of our crew members. This was way in the beginning, um, while we were still working on the script based on the FBI. But at that dinner, there were, they said, there's only a few people, but it turned out there were 250 of the Osage, all filled and uh, dressed in their regalia, et cetera. A traditional, a traditional Osage meal, a beef and gravy, meat pies, um, spoons, no knives and forks, traditional. And at a certain point, they got up and started speaking, using the mic and talking about their grandparents and their uncles and their great aunts and people who were killed, how they were killed, who did what. And I'm realizing that this is, this is actual. These are who they are. This is real. It's alive still for the It is people. still alive, and they haven't spoken about it for a long time. Um, the generation skipped. They didn't talk to it. They didn't tell the young ones about it. But what really was interesting is Margie Burkhardt got up, and she's the granddaughter uh, of Ernest Burkhardt, the character that Leo plays in the film. She got up, and she said, you have to understand that, yes, there was murder, et cetera, et cetera, but um, Molly and Ernest were in love. They were in love. And then I realized this is much more complicated because if they were in love, how was he going about what he was doing? And then later, someone told me, you have to understand, Bill Hale and Henry Roan, the guy he killed, said they were best friends. I said, now that's the story. And so at a certain point, Leo turned to me and he said, where's the heart? Where is the heart? And I said, well, it's with Lily, I said. And it's with Molly. That means with Molly and with Ernest. He said, so maybe I should play Ernest instead of Tom White. Okay, so when you, when you, when you, when you make that shift, uh, you know, 
so it, it changes where the focus is. It's 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 they've got an Osage character as as yeah. one of the main characters there. How closely did you work with the Osage people once you actually started were, were doing the film itself? Well, by that point, that night at that dinner, I began to I became, <clears throat> you know, I, look, I'm, I'm a Manhattanite. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I grew up downtown. I'm, I, now I live uptown. I don't. I never been in a, in a prairie. <laughs> it's big and it's wide, and then these people come around, and I got. You had to get to know the people, mm-hmm. and once I got to know them, um, I started to get very comfortable with them, uh, and uh, through our experts who were there, mm-hmm. um, uh, people who started to help us. And before you realized, we had all the Osage helping us. And ultimately, they worked on every aspect of the picture, including behind the camera, by the way. You know, they, they said, well, listen, you know, do you mind us? Do I mind us? They could do the work. Do it. We have to take another break. But we'll be right back with more Martin Scorsese, everybody. Enjoying this episode of The Late Show Pod Show? Then head to cohst.app slash late show or visit the link in the description to fill out our quick two-minute survey all about getting to know you. A minute's a long time not to talk. I know. Hey, everybody, we're back here with the director of Killers of the Flower Moon, Mr. Martin Scorsese. You talk about in your films, often morality and sin and, and forgiveness. But, but of all the films you've made, is this the most evil representation of humanity you've made a film about? Because it's such a mixture of love and hate. Well, that's a, it's a really good question because I think that's one of the, one of the uh, elements that made it so compelling for me to stay with the project because we worked on that script for so long. And I think what it was was immersing myself in that world and realizing, yes, yeah. I mean, I've made films about professional gangsters. We've had other, uh, you know, uh, Cape Fear and that sort of thing. This is different. This is um, a sort of quotidian day-to-day evil, which may be something that, you know, part of, is part of our human nature. I always thought, how much in ourselves are we capable of that? given the right and wrong circumstances, you know, um, dehumanizing other people, all of that, without preaching it, mm-hmm. without preaching it. But let's get into the actual characters and, and see how they manipulate each other. Um, it's one of the most extraordinary things about the film, just to jump here, is that you see them love each other. Yes. And then you know the evil that they're doing. Yes. At yeah. the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this is something that we worked on as we shot the picture so that... No scene was actually set. We worked it out, myself and the actors and my uh, uh, co-producer, Marianne Bauer, we worked it out on script so that we would be able to open up each scene and, you know, we kept asking, how much does he know and when does he know it? Mm-hmm. And what does he do about it? Is he really po- does he really poison her? You know. Well, without giving too much away, by the yeah. end of the film, there's a question of what, does, what, what is everything that Lily knows? And, and, and what is she capable? What forgiveness is she capable of? Yeah. That's a real question in that last scene with her. And I, I just want to bring that up to talk about, uh, I want to talk about Lily Gladstone playing, you know, I said, I said Lily, I meant Molly, but 
Yeah. I'll talk about Lily Gladstone's performance. She was just nominated for an, for an yes, Oscar. As you yes. said, she's the first Native American yeah. woman nominated for an Oscar. Why? She already won the Golden Globe. Oh, yeah, yeah. Golden yeah. Globe, other accolades. What's it like to... What was that? What is it like to see people uh, appreciate this performance that she's given? Oh, it's, it's a blessing, really. She has a, a, a centered feeling about her, and she... Uh, has an intelligence and understanding um, that you could see in the eyes. There's something going on in the face. She doesn't have to do much. The face is perfect for cinema, you know. Um, and she really, um, whenever we felt, we felt that we could incorporate her into the process of actually, one, I don't know if you want to call it writing, but actually behaving in scenes, that she'd inevitably do the right thing which would be in accordance with the Osage. She's Blackfoot, uh, Blackfeet, so, and Prince Ney. So uh, there were other elements. We had to get that straight, that she didn't do something that was Blackfoot, that was Osage. All of this, and we felt confident with her, and we'd always go with her as to checking what is right, what is wrong, with, with all, the, um, all the experts from the Osage also. Um, you know, and so really to see... People react to her now. Um, I, I, I almost I can't, I can't believe that it's the first Native American uh, nominated for Best Actor. Well, you also have a lot of musicians in this yes. film. You've got uh, Jason Isbell, Sturgill Simpson. You got Pete Yorn. You got Jack White. Uh, why do you work with musicians as actors? And why are you so close? Why are you so close to so many musicians? Because I find musicians intimidating. Yeah, they, they, these guys scare no, me. No, they, they're here. like scared. Right, they're, these guys are exactly these guys. Yeah, but really. musicians, I don't understand. Are you a musician? <laughs> are you a musician yourself? No, I wanted to be. I wanted to be, but I, I, you know, the first, the first art that I that I that I was exposed to was music on '78 records, the Django Reinhardt in the Hot Club of France, and so I was just four years old, and suddenly I imagined these images, and to this day, when I make a film, or even without making a film, when I hear music. I imagine scenes, I imagine images. So everything comes from music. Music is the purest form. Do you write to music? No, uh, yes, yeah, oh yeah. Write, design shots to music mm. do you have uh, constantly. Different music or do you have like a thing you go to? No, no different. Different music. Different, yeah. Now this is your 10th film with Robert De Niro and your sixth film with Leonardo DiCaprio. Here you are directing both of them. I think it's right trying there. to direct as you can see me. Yes. <laughs> they have their own ideas yeah, sometimes. They have their own ideas. This yeah. is the yeah. problem with actors. <laughs> What was it like to direct them together for the first time? Well, <laughs> it turns out that, of course, the first film that they did was This Boy's Life. And he played the father and, and uh, Leo played the son, right? And uh, in a funny way, Bob looked over at one point. He said, you know, in a funny way, this is very similar to This Boy's Life mm-hmm. in terms of the relationship between mm-hmm. Uncle Bill and, and, and Ernest. And so um, uh, uh, they just kind of smiled about that. And we moved on. However, uh, the thing with uh, De Niro and, and uh, uh, Leo, they work um, instinctively, they're the same, but they worked outwardly differently. Bob has less talking. Leo likes to talk a great deal. Yes. Great deal. And so, but I mean, good talking. It's like in yes. meetings and drinks and talking and dinners and constantly talking about. Bob is always a little more. A little more pu- pulled back. Try um, interviewing him sometime. Yes! 
Yes. I, I think love you... interviewing him, but he doesn't talk that much. Mm, he's no. not hostile. He just uh, he's like, happy he to be there. He doesn't first say time much. I ever had him right there sitting in that chair for the first minute, I said, let's just not talk at all. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. He's talking now. Back in the 70s, he never spoke. Really? Never. And even at dinner parties, like he would come to a dinner party, but at, like a dinner, he would be there and, you know, never say a word. But it, he was there. <laughs> That's there. Nice. That's you nice. Know. And, but the two of them together were wonderful. Now, it was like is it true that you, is it first it true you first learned about Leonardo DiCaprio from Bob? Yes. Yeah. Bob called me. He just said, "Hey, he just did this film, this uh, this Boy's Life, and is this kid, Leo DiCaprio." He said, "You got to meet him sometime." And at that point, Bob, um, because we had a very close relationship, but he never really recommended actors to me. He never did. He was always very quiet about that sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, unless we're, unless we were casting. It's a different situation. But he would never call up and say, this is interesting. And somehow, pulled it together, and we did Gangs of New York and wound up making six pictures together. Uh, Don't go nowhere, and don't you go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Martin Scorsese, everybody. It's Martin Scorsese. Um, you knew Bob growing up, or you guys were in the same neighborhood? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we were, I was on Elizabeth Street between Prince and Houston, and uh, very chic now. <laughs> Wasn't when I was there. Um, and Bob was hanging out with a group of guys on Kenmare Street, um, off Mott Street. Mm-hmm. They, they were centered in a club. A club? Yeah. They had, like, a clubhouse? Well, it wasn't really a clubhouse. It was called the Alto Knights. The Alto Knights. Yeah, members only. How did one become a member? You don't become a member. <laughs> did you have a club? No, no. Well, we had, yeah, a club where we could, you know, hang out at night a little bit, but it really wasn't a real club. We'd have to, you know, have to make sure the police were okay with it. They'd come around, say, hey, fellas, and give them $5, or whatever it was. <laughs> that was... So, it was a, it's the fifties, okay? It's the fifties. Okay. All right. No, and then we would drink, you know, late at night and that sort of thing on the weekends. Back, back in the in the back of the uh, sometimes the back of the tenements, and it was really wild. Um, with the jukebox playing, it was great. The sound, the sound of the, the rock and roll in my films comes from those those sounds of those the jukebox playing in those hallways. Um, but that group, the Alto Knights, uh, we didn't frequent. <laughs> my group of guys didn't frequent that. We said hello. That was about it. But I re- years later, Brian De Palma had me meet um, uh, Bob De Niro because they had done a film called Hi, Mom at, at uh, my friend Jay Cox and Verna Bloom's apartment um, for a dinner. And uh, basically, um, after dinner, uh, Bob, who was very quiet, this is maybe 15 years later, maybe 20, he looked at me and he said, um, you're a friend of, your friends were with Curdy, right? And your friends with Joey. And your friends with Nikki the Hat. I said, yeah. I said, Frankie Aquilino. Yeah. He said, do you, you know, it's me. I said, who? Bob. I said, you're Bobby. He said, yeah. We were 16 years old. I didn't recognize him. And uh, he became an actor, you know? And so that's how we met again. And I showed him the, my first film that I was trying to make, and that became Mean Streets. Is it true that when you were directing Taxi Driver, that scene uh, where he's going, you talking to me? You talking to me? Yeah. That... There were producers trying to they were make not, you cut? Yeah, we were behind schedule. 
We were in such trouble. <laughs> and they were banging on the door and I had to go to the door, open the door and say, this is good, this is good. Yeah, wait, give me five, two more minutes, two more minutes. One more take, one more take. And he was improvising it. And I was at his feet because there were no video assist at the time. And I was saying, do it again, do it again. I mean, he was doing the thing with the moves and the gun. And that's actually a Columbus Avenue. We shot that yeah. on 88th Street. Some of the buildings now gone. It was a condemned building. But like they were, they were mad. So if you had stayed on schedule, there'd be no you talking to me. That's right. <laughs> and it, that wasn't in the script either. It came from him, you wow. know. Well, recently you've made a bit of a splash on social media with your, uh, uh, with your daughter, Francesca. Uh, you guys, the audience knows that you've been making TikToks. She makes them waste with you. We have a clip here of you guys TikToking. Oh, please. Just see my twin in them. Yeah, my twin in them. <laughs> now that's art. Yeah. Is that Francesca? <laughs> <laughs> They're crazy. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. How did you guys start doing TikTok together? She did it. She, she would come over to me and say, Dad, do this. And I was like, I remember I'd just gotten back from Taiwan. We were shooting silence. And I had a beard. And she said, just say this. And I said, would you leave me alone? said, say this, please, I'm trying to do something. Say this. So finally I said it. And it wound up in a TikTok of some kind. And it, it went viral. And um, I remember a, an Indian filmmaker, a friend of mine, came into New York, wanted to say hello. And I walked in the room and I said, oh, I, I should tell you I have a beard. And he goes, oh, no, we all know. It's all over India. <laughs> I said, it's the most populous country in the world. How could you have done such a thing? Now, anyway, that's how it started. That's and how then finally, started. And she's so directing you. Yes, and the, the, the worst, I mean, the hardest one was the, uh, I was trying to, trying to do something on Killers of the Flower Moon in the house I was living in, and it was right before shooting started, and she came up to me and said, just want to, I'm going to ask you these questions, and it was feminine hygiene stuff, mm -hmm. and I, I didn't know the answer, so I said, what does that look like, and I made, I made my suggestion, I guessed, and apparently it was quite funny. <laughs> there were things in there. <laughs> that were new to you. Very new. All right. <laughs> and I'm 81. Um, uh, it, it's so wonderful to have you here. Thank, thank you, thank Marty. You, thank you. Really wonderful. Killers of the Flower Moon is now playing in select theaters and streaming globally on Apple TV+. Martin Scorsese, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Just one more thing, if you want to see more of me, come to the Late Show YouTube channel for more clips and exclusives. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews or coverage of all the biggest stories in the nba our new show is the place to be five days a week download and follow beyond the arc on apple podcasts spotify and wherever you get your favorite podcasts